You know, when we step over the line to follow Jesus, we receive some incredible things. Things that we could never even hope to repay. Uh, We receive grace and we receive mercy. What is grace? Receiving what we don't deserve. What's mercy? Not receiving what we rightfully do deserve. And so all these things are given to us when we become followers of Jesus. When we step over that line to follow Jesus. Unmerited favor. Unmerited grace. Forgiveness that we don't even deserve. And that's the reason why we call it good news. It's the reason why we say, as Christians, there's nothing greater in this world than to have a relationship with Jesus, to be joined together in his church, to be an heir of God and to co-heir with Christ Jesus, part of the faith family of God. It is the greatest gift we could ever receive and it's the greatest gift we could ever bestow to those who are not yet part of that faith family. And that's what we're going to be learning about today. We're going to be learning that with great privilege comes great responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. For the last 10 weeks, we have been learning the first half of the book of Ephesians where Paul has been outlining to us that before Jesus Christ, we were dead to our sin. We were separated from God and there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. But on account of the person and the work of Jesus, on account of his death and his resurrection, we have been set free. We have been adopted into the family of God. We have been changed. And all of these things have been granted and credited to us. And then there's a pivot point in Ephesians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says to us, Now live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And he's beginning to unveil to us what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And as you look through the pages of Scripture, you see that the Bible uses a lot of different words to describe Christians. And I just want to work through a couple of them with you today so that we have them in the back of our mind before we get to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Just three of them for you. The first word that we see in Scripture all over the place is that we are representatives representatives at the same level of someone who has power of attorney and 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 you know what an attorney does they not only represent the ideals the the values the the mission of particular people they represent them in their essence they represent who they are and the words that they say what they communicate in a court of law before a judge and before a jury what they say could be the difference between a a person spending the rest of their days in prison or getting off free to be able to defend the truth that this person is you know not the wrongly convicted person and all of that hinges on their ability to defend this person And interestingly, Scripture uses a very similar theme. We read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible says, We are therefore Christ's representatives, as though God were making his appeal through us. We represent Jesus. Another passage of Scripture that comes to mind that I find so interesting is Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do everything in the name of Jesus. You know, for those of us who are Christians, when we pray, we often end our prayer saying, in Jesus' name. And have you ever wondered why we do that? 
Maybe just maybe you have this idea in your mind that when we say in Jesus' name, it's kind of like sealing the letter and sending up to heaven. It doesn't count until we say in Jesus' name. But what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves that the prayer we just prayed ought to have been spoken in, in a sense that we are trying to communicate what does Jesus want in this world. And I want to say in my heart of hearts, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I want my words to echo Jesus' words. I want to reciprocate what he wants and communicate it to God the Father. I want to represent Jesus even in my prayers. Even in my prayers. And so what this means is how we walk, how we talk, how we use our time, how we communicate to others, how we deal with conflict, all of this ought to be under the umbrella of speaking in the name of Jesus. So that when people look at me, they, they would see Jesus, even if they don't know who Jesus is. They would understand a little bit more who Jesus is in his essence by interacting with me. The second word that we see is the word ambassador. An ambassador is an official envoy, a high-ranking diplomat who represents the person who is still back home, whether it be uh, the crown or a uh, president or a prime minister, that person who has sent them out to represent them and their ideals and their values before the people that they come into contact with. And once again, scripture says that we are ambassadors too. In fact, the apostle Paul is going to be saying this to us in two weeks, and we're going to read this. Paul says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And by the way, he is in chains. He's in Rome, in prison. He says, I am an ambassador in chains and pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So we are representatives of Jesus. We are ambassadors to Jesus And another word that we hear a lot in the New Testament is something we reviewed two weeks ago where we learned that we are also priests for Jesus. And we learned that if you are a priest, then there's three unique things that happen to us. It means we represent Jesus. It means we have direct access to Jesus. And it also means that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do the work of Jesus in the world. We represent him. We are ambassadors to him, and we are a priesthood unto him. And that's what Peter says. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And all of this is going to be echoed in what we're about to read in Ephesians chapter 2. Five. That's what's been given to us. Every man, woman, youth, child who has stepped over the line to follow Jesus, we receive all of this in that moment. This isn't simply something that's given to professional Christians, pastors, vocational ministers, missionaries. If you have stepped over the line to follow Jesus, you are a priest. You are a representative. You are an ambassador to Jesus. And so what that means is if someone comes up to me and says, hey, Justin, you know, when did you experience the call into ministry? When did God call you into ministry? The only appropriate response that I could give is to say, 
the moment I became a follower of Jesus. And that has to be the same for you too. And maybe, just maybe, for some of you, if you've been raised up in the Christian faith your whole life and you can't even remember a time in which you didn't know Jesus, and you haven't thought this way, that, that you are a representative of Jesus, then, then here's what you can do. You can look at your calendar and realize that today it is November the 22nd, 2020, and maybe today is the day that you can mark it on the calendar and you can say, I am a representative of Jesus. I represent him. I have direct access to him. I am an ambassador for him. And so all of us are in ministry. But here's what this means. Knowing that great, with great privilege comes great responsibility, there's also a consequence to this. And I put it this way in your note sheet. Since I am an ambassador for Christ, what that means is people can and do make judgments on Christ about the way that I live. Have you thought about that before? That people can make judgments about Jesus, about his church, about the way that you and I live? And, and you might say, Justin, no, 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 no. We, we shouldn't do that. We should tell people that don't look to me, look to Jesus because we can be pretty lousy Christians sometimes. We can be jerks for Jesus sometimes. We can make a whole series of mistakes, can't we? It's one of the reasons why I don't put a Jesus fish on the back of my car because I know I need a little more sanctified living in that area. And we know that we make these mistakes. So we say, don't look to me, look to Jesus. But what do we see in Scripture? Scripture says, you are my ambassadors. You are my representatives. And whether we like it or not, people will make judgments on the church on account of the way that we live. So what that means is your coworkers, whether you like it or not, can make judgments on Christ and the church based on the way that you interact with them at the workplace. What that means is, students, if you're hanging out with your friends or with your fellow classmates and they don't know Jesus, they can make their own judgments about Jesus and about his church based on the way that you interact with them. Or even with people who you may disagree with or people you have vehement arguments with or people that you have been estranged from and you're a Christian and they are not, they can make judgments on the forgiveness of Jesus on the way that you interact with them on that very topic. See, these are the challenging elements of being a follower of Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1. You got it? Here we go. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, there's that word again, adoptive children into the family of God, everything we've learned for the last 10 weeks, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Circle, highlight, underline. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. 
for you were once darkness. Notice that. He doesn't say you are, were in darkness. He says you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out whatever pleases the Lord. Find out whatever pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every, to- every opportunity, because the days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity. See, we're responsible for the way in which we interact with our world, And we're responsible for how we act towards others. And whether we like it or not, others will make judgments about Jesus and his church on how we live or don't live. And you see, one of the things that we're going to see here is that there are a series of challenges that we are going to face as we follow Jesus and we seek to follow him in obedience and love. And I just want to take note of three of them that are outlined in these verses. The first one we find in verse 8. If you have your Bible, look there again. It says that we live in a world of darkness. But it actually says more than that, doesn't it? It says we were darkness. See, oftentimes I think what, what we view in our life is there's darkness all around us. And people are making poor choices. And people are making bad decisions. And there's sin in the world. And there's a sin nature that I have to wrestle with. But the Apostle Paul, once again, he says, get rid of the binoculars. Put on the mirror. He says, you were once darkness. You in your essence. He puts you in the center scene. You know, it reminded me of uh, something that, that I used to do when, when Julie and I would go to sleep. Oftentimes, I can't sleep, and so I read at night. But if I turn on the light, then Julie gets frustrated because she can't sleep. And now she has one of those, you know, big, I don't know, masks, so she can't see the light, and so everything's okay. But back in the day, when uh, I was a super awesome husband, I would get those headbands, right, and had the little light. And the only really frustrating thing with those is the light was so dim that you had to make sure that that tiny little bit of light was exactly where you need to read. Otherwise, it's still not legible. It's not bright enough. And that reminded me of, of what Paul is talking about here. He says that we need to have the light of Christ go into those areas of darkness. We need to expose them, right? That's what we read in verse 11. Look again at this. Chapter 5, verse 11 says this have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And I think maybe for some of us, we get filled with a little bit of glee and we say, yes, I need to expose the darkness. And we get on Twitter and Facebook and we start pontificating on the evils of our world and darkness is there and there and there. It's all over the place. But here's what's so interesting. Both prior to verse 11 and after, Paul explains to us who he's talking about in these verses. Look again at verse 8. What does he say in verse 8? He says, you were once darkness, 
Forget about the darkness everywhere else for a moment. You were once darkness. And then he parses that out before we get to verse 11. And then on the back end, he also says in verse 15, after talking about this motif between darkness and light and what that looks like and how we need to rise up, O sleeper, and and rise from the dead, verse 15, be careful then how who lives. How you live, right? Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. So what we see here is when Paul is talking about exposing the darkness, he's talking about you. And for me, he's talking about me. And so what that means is, if if I'm a follower of Jesus, I need to point the light of Christ on every area of my life. My marriage, my relationships, my finances, how I use my time, how I choose to forgive, how I choose to interact with people, all of it falls under the rule and the reign of Jesus. But not only that, I need to put the light of Christ in the areas of sin in my life. I need to expose them. And this is painful, isn't it? I think even the most well-intended Christians, oftentimes what we can do is we can try to veil our weaknesses. If we're not careful, what we often do is we mask who we truly are and we project perfection. I was talking to uh, one of my pastor friends a few weeks ago and we were talking about the parking lot miracle. Have you heard of this? The parking lot miracle. Yeah, it's, it's a real thing. It's where, you know, prior to COVID when we actually came here for worship, you might have a, a morning where you've been fighting with your spouse all morning. You had a terrible week. And then you get to the kitchen table with your kids and they're misbehaving and you're fighting with them and it's an all-out war and then you realize that there's 20 minutes before church starts and it takes 21 minutes to get there and you start screaming at your kids, telling them to get in the van. They're not even finished their breakfast. You stuff them all in there. You start driving before they got seatbelts on. You run through red lights. There's arguments. There's fights. You get into the parking lot. What happens? Everything's perfect. You get out of your van. You see... Bob and Sally, and they're getting out of their van with their kids, and you say, hey, Bob, Sally, how's it going? Doing great. How are you? Oh, doing awesome. How are the kids? Great. It's the parking lot miracle. Everything is A-OK. And you know what, what grieves me about this as a pastor is the church ought to be the only place of all places where we can be vulnerable enough and transparent enough to live as we truly are. But oftentimes, here at the church, that's what we do. We mask who we truly are. We project perfection, and we don't allow others to see what is happening on the inside. And what Scripture says is we need to do the hard work of exposing ourselves for who we truly are to live as transparently as we possibly can. And that is a hard, hard thing to do. Our temper, our thoughts, our resentment, our secret sins, we have to lay them all out to bear and to say, Jesus, here they are. Take them from me. Help me to live into the light. And that's a painful thing. See, we're we're never just going to nonchalantly follow Jesus. We're not going to simply fall into being a follower of Jesus. We need to have more in common with the allies on the beach of Normandy, where we are actively pushing against the enemy. We are 
fighting this uphill siege. We are actively, strategically moving forward. And if we don't have that kind of perspective, then complacency is going to lead us down another path. We need to actively be fighting sin or it's going to be killing us. The second thing that we see is in verse 14. Take a look at this. It says that the world is a grave. That is why it is said, Paul says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. I I think this is an amazing one. It kind of reminds me of what I'm tempted to do on daylight savings time when we lose an hour of sleep, right? The alarm goes off, and what do we want to do? We want to hit the snooze button. And how many times in our own lives have we hit that spiritual snooze button? Maybe it actually is an alarm that's going off in the morning that is prompting you to start reading scripture. And what do you do? Snooze. Should I volunteer for that children's ministry? Snooze. Should I have that really difficult conversation that I've been putting off? Snooze. How many times do we have this in our life where we know that we need to take an active step forward in our faith, but we're so tempted to hit the snooze button? And Paul says we need to fight against this. Don't you realize that there are consequences for the choices that you make in this life? Don't hit the snooze button. There is an all-out war that Christ is calling you to And we need to take on an active role in this. And the third and final thing that we see here is in verses 15 through 17, where we find that the age is evil as well. Verse 15, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. And here it is, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And so what he's telling us here is that not only do you have a sin nature, not only were you darkness, not only is the world a grave, but the age that we live in is evil. There there is sin all around us. It is pervading every single aspect of our lives. And so the Christian life, in a word, in this sense, is struggle. Struggle. And we need to actively be fighting against it as it enters into our life. We need to be fighting against the complacency. I think oftentimes we have this picture in our mind that we're kind of in a neutral position. And over here there's a good choice. And over here there's a poor choice. But I don't have to choose right now. I could sit here and I could contemplate it and I could put off a decision. I could wait till tomorrow. But eventually I'm going to make that good choice. But what Paul is highlighting here is that the image we should really be thinking about is like if we were in a river without a life raft and we were heading downstream going with the current. We're not in a neutral position. If we are sitting in complacency, then we are falling back with the current. And Paul says, you need to take active steps. You need to start swimming against the current upstream. It's going to be painful. It's going to be a fight. But you need to do so. You need to enter into that fight. Fighting against these things in your life. And so you might say, Justin, okay, what does it look like for me to do that? What does it look like for me to live in the spirit and to engage in in this kind of spiritual warfare that Paul's talking about here? 
Well, I want to identify three things that, that Paul brings to light in this passage. The first one is that as a Christian, we would say that I will make the most of every opportunity. I'll make the most of every opportunity. Again, look at verse 15. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. So if you're going to grow in God, if you're going to make the most of every opportunity that's been granted to you, then you have to choose to grow in godliness. You have to choose certain priorities in your life. You're never just going to drift into godliness. You're never just going to drift into growing in sanctified living and looking more and more like Jesus. You need to take an active role participating in this. It's a series of choices, ongoing daily choices that have to be made. And again, if, if you are watching uh, this service for the very first time, you're not a member of Gateway and you're just tuning in, this might feel like a very do-related sermon. But we have to be thinking about everything we've been learning for the last 10 weeks that has been leading us up to this point. It's not until Paul reminds us that we are part of the household of faith, that our hope is already secure in the person and work of Jesus, does Paul finally say, now, now that you are in the household of faith, live the calling that you have received. Live it out. And it's really interesting what we have been learning and what we're going to learn for the next couple of weeks before we end this series is the number of times Paul uses that word live, which is the Greek word walk. Let me just walk you through them for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says this, I urge you to live, that's the Greek word, to walk a life worthy of the calling you've received. Ephesians 4 17, I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live or walk as the Gentiles do. Ephesians 5.2, we just read this. Walk in the way of love. Ephesians 5.8, now you are light in the Lord. Live or walk as children of the light. Ephesians 5.15, be careful then how you walk. Again and again and again, there's these active words. He's saying it's not just a choice to think this way but it is a choice to act, a choice to live in such a way that you are going to daily be putting these things on. So you want to grow in God? That's great. Are you diving into his word? Are you devoting yourself to scripture? Are you devoting yourselves to prayer? Are you living as transparently as possible? Do you have systems of accountability in your life where you are living out the one another's, the commands of Scripture to grow with fellow believers? These are the things that we've been instructed to do so that we can live out our faith. And when we do this, when we make God's priorities first and foremost in our life, I think there's, there's two practical principles, two commitments that we have to make. The first commitment that we'll make is this that we will say to ourselves, I won't put off my next step of obedience. I won't put off my next step of obedience. What do we do when we think we have some spare time coming up? Maybe you have a honey-do list and uh, your spouse has been begging you, pleading with you to get these things done. Uh, But you know tomorrow you have some spare time. He or she's been asking you, could you do it tonight? Or maybe you have things that you need to catch up on at work and and you know that you have some time coming up. What, What do we do? We say, I will do that tomorrow, right? I'll do it 
tomorrow. But what Paul is saying here is tomorrow isn't guaranteed. The only thing that you are promised is today. And so a mark of a Christian is someone who says, I will not put off the next step of obedience. You know, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Paul and the priests, the Levitical priesthood, would often instruct the people of Israel and Christians to do the same thing. Whenever there was a, a, a sacrifice or an offering being made, the, the priests would look out at the people of Israel and tell them that if you have any fault with a brother or sister in the Lord, if you have any resentment, any bitterness, any argument that you need to resolve, here's what you must do. Leave the sacrifice on the altar and go and seek reconciliation with your brother or your sister. And then the Apostle Paul says the same thing with regard to the sacrament of Holy Communion. He says, do not eat of the bread or drink of the wine or drink of the cup. If you are not at peace with a brother or sister, here's what you do. Put it aside for a moment and sprint towards your brother and sister and seek reconciliation with them. And so we see repeatedly in Scripture this, this mantra, this motif, this guideline telling us that we will never put off our next step of obedience. We will always actively enter into the fray, as difficult or challenging as it may be. So here's what this means for you. Perhaps it means there's someone that you need to forgive, or a decision that you need to make, or the next step of faith that you need to take, something to share, someone to talk to, a decision to be more generous, whatever it is, don't put off that next step of obedience. Don't say, well, I'm just a young person. Maybe when I get older, I'll make this decision. Or maybe when I settle down and get married. Or maybe when I have kids. Or maybe when I have a more stable work environment. Or maybe when I get that pay raise. Or, you know, it's only 10 more years before I retire. Maybe once I retire, I'll have more time and then I'll do those things. Don't put off the next step of obedience. All you are promised is today. And so the commitment of a Christian is I will not put off the next step of obedience. The second commitment that we make is that I will make the most of every divine appointment. And so the first part has to more to do with our sanctified living, looking introspectively, choosing to actively kill sin in my life, to expose the darkness through the light of Christ. But the second piece is everything about the Great Commission, that we will choose to make the most of every divine appointment. See, if, if you have a friend in your orbit, a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, you can rest assured of this. You are God's plan A and there is no plan B. God has placed you uniquely in your situation for such a time as this so that they can see the love of Jesus through you. Make no mistake of that because Christ has already told you, you are my representatives. You are my priesthood. You are my ambassadors. I have placed you in this position to bear fruit in the world that I love so that others who don't yet know who I am may see me through you. You know, for those of you who are parents, why is it that we are so eager to go to our kids' recitals or sporting events or spelling bees? Why do we do that? Well, for one, we, we love our kids, right? But for two, you never get a memo the day before that tomorrow your son is going to hit the home run to win the game. Or tomorrow your daughter is going to get second place in the spelling bee. 
or tomorrow one of your kids is going to show exemplary behavior on the sporting field and be rewarded for it. All you know is that time is precious and there's going to come a time in which the kids are going to be out of the house, right? For some of you, closer than others. I know for myself, I still have a vivid memory of my firstborn son Liam being born and now he's seven. It happened in a blink. It happened in a moment and I know that time is precious. Time is short and so I want to live into that moment. Paul says, even more so. What about those in your life who don't know Jesus? All you've been promised is today. So make the most of every divine appointment. And the second instruction that Paul gives us is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17. It says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, there it is, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to propose to you that there are two ways that we seek to do this. There are two ways that we seek to cope with the pain of this life. Because there's always pain. Paul has already outlined that. He's already told us that the world is a grave and the world is dark and that you were once darkness and it's all around us and we have a sin nature and on account of that, the world's messed up. It's a difficult place to live in. And so if you're acting like everything is okay, then you're lying to yourself or you're trying to project perfection so others see that things are going well in your life, but they're not. We all have challenges, don't we? And so what Paul is saying is, because I already know, Paul already knows you, even though he wrote this 2,000 years ago, because I already know you're struggling with this, you are going to be tempted to deal with the, the pain of life in one of two ways. One way will leave you dry and weary, and the other way will fill you with joy. The first is what I'm going to refer to as the coping mechanism of choice. The coping mechanism of choice. And, and in this passage, Paul talks about being drunk with wine, right? He talks about alcoholism, an, an, adri- an addiction to alcohol. But it's just a for instance. It's not the quintessential example. It could be an addiction to drugs or to pornography or to your work, or even something as subtle as an addiction to being so well-liked by your peers that your identity is wrapped up in the views of other people and not in Christ. There's plenty of different coping mechanisms that we can choose to try to cope with the, the challenges of life, to dull the pain so that we can make it through. And the second way that we can do this is through the Holy Spirit of God. Now, here's something I want to highlight here. I, I want you to see that both self-medicating, the, uh, what I refer to as the coping mechanism of choice, um, and the Holy Spirit often seek to produce the same things in you. Now, give me a moment to try and explain that. Both of them have the same objectives in mind, but one, as I've said, will leave you dry. The other one will fill you with life. Here's here's how this works. Alcohol is a depressant, right? It dulls your senses to reality. It makes you less aware of your surroundings, and that is how it provides comfort. You can go to a bar at two in the morning and look around the room, and you can see a lot of people who need comfort, 
Because pain is in their life. They're dealing with challenges in their life and they need a source of comfort and and that's often what alcohol can do. But the Holy Spirit, conversely, is going to help you cope with difficulty by opening your eyes, illuminating your senses to what God has done for you. So alcohol gets rid of worry and it provides comfort by helping you forget. The Holy Spirit gets rid of worry and provides comfort by helping you remember, don't you see? Or alcohol can give you courage by dampening your wits and making you less aware of what's happening in your surroundings. And the Holy Spirit gives you courage by revealing to you what God has done in your life, which is what keeps you from being utterly afraid. Both of them seek to do the same thing. Alcohol gives you joy by giving you that temporary thrill. The Holy Spirit gives you joy by revealing the immeasurable love of God for you before you've done anything at all. Both alcohol and the Holy Spirit are seeking to provide joy and comfort and rest and hope in the midst of a very difficult world that we live in, but only one of them will last. And so this is a pastoral response. It might seem harsh, like get rid of drunkenness, get rid of debauchery, but what he's ultimately saying here is, I know on the front end that this is going to destroy your life. It's going to be a cheap thrill. It's going to be a temporary fix, but it's just kicking the can down the road. Please, please, please recognize that the only true source of hope in your life is the Holy Spirit who's going to guide your life in such a way that he will help you pass through the darkness. And that is what leads to the third point. Choose an attitude of gratitude. Look at verse 19. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God. Always giving thanks to God. Always (laughs) giving thanks to God. There are no circumstances in which we ought not give thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. See, folks, if if we have the forgiveness from sins, and if we've been adopted into the family of God, and and if we have a hope that is so secure that regardless of the circumstances of our life, we know that we have an eternity that is laid before us with Christ, then it makes no sense, respectfully, for us to be Christian Eeyores for Jesus. To be glum and sad and disheartened and bewildered and afraid and broken down, knowing what we have laid before us. Knowing what Christ has done for us. And so Paul says, choose an attitude of gratitude. Remind your hearts of what you already know, what Christ has done for you. And he says, do it through song. You know, songs are incredibly powerful. What are they? They're they're sermons through music, typically a little shorter. But that's what they are, right? And you know, I've been a pastor long enough to know that I've had the opportunity to, to sit in hospitals and in senior living homes interacting with family members and friends and they would have a mother or a father who has Alzheimer's or amnesia and oftentimes that's really painful because they often don't even remember their own loved ones, their own children's names. And it grieves the children because all they want is to hold their mother's hand 
and to say, Mom, it's, it's John. It's Sally, don't you remember? And the pain is, is that often she will not. But what I find so fascinating, and I've, I've seen this a number of times, is we'll start to sing a hymn. We'll sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And then she'll start to sing, That saved a wretch like me. And for some reason, I don't know what's happening in the brain, I don't have the neurological answers, for some reason they remember the hymns of their youth, even if they don't even remember their own child's name. There's something powerful in singing through the valleys and through the pain. And that's exactly what we need today, isn't it? Don't we need to hear this? To see that Paul is telling us that the way to thrive during hard times is not to just cope with it, not to hide it under a rug, but to worship through it. To give praise to God, to have gratitude in our hearts on account of what we already know to be true. That even these, these temporary afflictions that we now face don't even compare to what we have in Christ Jesus. And that's the source of our joy. That's the source of our hope. See, I think we have an opportunity in the midst of COVID-19. Does it suck? Yes, it does. We hate it, don't we? But is it possible that God is doing something remarkable even in the midst of it? Maybe, just maybe, this is the first time in a long time that those who have been trying to cope with these issues in life. They're finally broken down and they're looking to you, a Christian, saying, how can you have such incredible hope in the midst of this? And maybe, just maybe, that is the catalyst for them to see the love of Jesus. Is it possible, dear Christian, that God in his sovereignty knew what he was up to? (laughs) Is it possible? And so what Paul tells us is that our joy in Jesus ought to be greater than the pain of our circumstances. Our joy in Jesus ought to be greater than the pain of our circumstances. And so Paul says, worship him, bow down, sing to him, express your gratitude to God for all that he has done in the midst of this dark hour. And so you say, Justin, what does that look like practically speaking? How do I, how do I take that next step? Well, I want to give you two closing instructions, giving you a closer look to the Holy Spirit before we close. Two things. Number one, when it comes to our life, our Christian life, unfortunately, we all have static on the line. What does that mean? Static is just sin. We have sin in our life. Perhaps one of the reasons why we can't see clearly what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life is because we're actively committed to darkness. Paul says, you once were darkness, but what I'm instructing you to do is to put off the old life that is rooted in sin and to put on the new life that is helping us grow in Christ's likeness, but we're still clinging to the old life. And maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons why you can't see what the Holy Spirit is doing is because you're still clinging to the old life. And so Paul says, flee from that. Flee from the sin which so easily entangles you. You might say, well, Justin, I go to church. I read my Bible sometimes. But respectfully, what God says elsewhere in Scripture is 
to obey is better than sacrifice. My favorite Christian author growing up, Keith Green, the way that he often put it, is to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't want your money. I want your life. I want your whole life. I want all of you. Not just bits and pieces. Give everything to me and I will give you rest. And then, number two, to hear the Holy Spirit, we have to stop, listen, and follow the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit of God is going to speak to us in three ways. Number one, the Word of God. This is God's love letter to his people. If you want to know the will of God in your life, be devoted to his word. Memorize scripture. Actively dive into scripture so that you can know the Lord more. Be devoted to scripture. Be devoted to prayer as you read scripture. Give this an opportunity in your life to say, I'm going to commit daily to the word of God. The second thing is through wise counsel. Other brothers and sisters in the Lord who are followers of Jesus, who are committed to this book, you gather together with them in iron sharpening iron so that both of you can grow in Christ-likeness. And then the third and and final is your inner promptings. But here's what I think often happens. If we're not careful, what we typically do is we flip that on its head and more often than not, all we follow is our inner promptings. Whereas what scripture says is, follow the word of God, be devoted to prayer, be devoted to one another in love so that you can engage in iron sharpening iron, and then maybe then you have a chance to follow your inner promptings that are being led by the Spirit. The Bible tells us only a fool will follow their inner promptings. Do you know why? Because we were darkness, we have a sin nature, and we're selfish. And so Paul says, Put on these three things so that you can be a committed Christ follower. How to walk in the Spirit, make the most of every opportunity, be controlled by the Holy Spirit, and choose an attitude of gratitude, knowing what Christ has done for you and for me. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who leads and guides us from day to day. And we ask, Lord, that we would be committed to following you wholeheartedly, that we would actively be trying to kill sin in our life, that we would expose it for where it is, and that we would follow you in obedience and love. We know, Lord, that you don't just want our Sundays, you don't just want our tithes, you don't just want our Wednesday nights, you want our lives. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the courage to step in on this day, on November the 22nd, for this to be our November 22 New Year's resolution, that we would step in and follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in advance that your Holy Spirit will do what you promised you would do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. See you next week.